Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. Hi, my name is Licia Scavage, and I'm a painter. You may have heard me on the first season of Dialogues with my friend, the filmmaker Tamara Jenkins. This time, I'm returning as the producer for a special episode that, on its surface, is about Matisse's famous painting, The Red Studio, which the conservators discovered was originally an entirely different painting that Matisse left sitting before deciding to repaint it with Venetian red and in essence overpainting the previous work to create the masterpiece that we know it is today. But what this episode is actually about is the nitty gritty of being in the studio, getting inside the mind of the artist and how and why they make the decisions they make. The idea for the podcast sprang from a conversation I had with the co-curator of the Matisse studio show, Ann Temkin, who is the chief curator of painting and sculpture at MoMA. During a walkthrough of the show, she casually asked me, Lisa, as a painter, what do you imagine he was up to during that period when he was not actively working on the canvas? I got super lit up by the question and just blurted out, I think he spent those couple months watching it and waiting kind of like a panther stalking it in the studio. I imagine he paced around it while that underpainting was drying and the painting began to call him and urges building to put that Venetian red layer down built up. He saw himself laying that paint down over and over before he even began dirtying a brush. You can see how thoughtfully he painted around the objects to make lines as negative spaces. So this was not a hasty decision. It is both a painting that seems well-planned and spontaneously felt at once, as he began to see what was happening once that Venetian red went on. How amazing it must have been to find himself in front of a painting that didn't look like anything anyone had ever seen before. Now, I also knew that while I was pontificating that I couldn't know what Matisse did or did not do, but what my response was revealing was all about me, my work, and processes. I leave paintings for a long period of time, watching and waiting, I guess a bit of stalking, and paintings usually, eventually, give me the information as to how and where to go next if I listen and watch carefully enough. My answer to Anne was ultimately about exposing my own studio processes. So this question Anne posed was so interesting to me I thought it would be really wonderful to draw it out in a Rorschachian kind of way to some of my fellow artists, if Anne would agree to ask them too. Fortunately, she was game, and in a fun way, she said, it'll be a little bit like speed dating. So since we can't get Matisse on the podcast, we're going to have Anne call up six living artists, and her first call is going to be to the painter and sculptor Rashid Johnson. She found him working in a studio in New York. 
Rashid has worked pretty much everywhere, but right now you get to see it at the Metropolitan Museum and also at LaGuardia Airport in the Delta Terminal. Good morning. Good morning. So I'm going to talk about Matisse's Red Studio painting. And specifically, this issue with the painting is what I've been really curious to speak with artists about. This whole concept that blows my mind is he had a painting, a finished in his mind at a certain moment painting that was a more narrative, realistic kind of description of what a studio looked like with the walls and the floor. And then what we know is at a certain undetermined point, he decided that he was going to come at it with this Venetian red at total risk of completely wrecking what he had, right? Right. It's, um, it's, a, it's a really interesting question and, and a complicated one. And in some ways it, it asks us to kind of delve into to the mind of another artist. Um, and simultaneously kind of explore kind of our own intentions and um, our understanding of, of, of when an artwork is successful, when an artwork has failed, when we intervene. And, um, and then the question that, you know, is often seen as quite naive is when is an artwork finished, right? Which is, right. Which is one that, that we often get. And, it, it, and it's often from people who um, we think... Uh, don't reflect as much on how an artwork comes to fruition. Um, but in some ways is actually quite an impressive question. Um, you know, thinking about the idea of intervening in a, in a painting or in a work after it has uh, had some sort of birth is for me very familiar. Um, as long as a work uh, stays with me um, is the length of time that it's in danger of me <laughs> finding <laughs> a moment to um, engage again. And I think that it really brings us back to this idea of, 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 of success and failure. Um, a work to me is oftentimes in limbo, um, are living in liminality. Uh, while it stays with me, you know, um, until it's released into the world to some degree, um, through either pressure, context, our, our need, um, our deadline, um, then I, I'm, I'm, I'm allowed to allow it to be what it is, right? But um, it lives in that liminality as long as it's like um, within proximity. On the premises. <laughs> yeah, as long as it's on the premises, like, you know, I feel like um, like it's in danger. And I think that's a really interesting way to describe it is to is to is to to live your life kind of subject to someone really kind of coming to you and like shaving your head or <laughs> right. pulling it's out like, a if only those paintings had legs and could run away from you. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, um, you know, this sense of like almost Plato's parable. Like I kind of wake up and find myself ready to say, you know, the sun is outside. Um, yeah. And so 
I understand how it could happen. I yeah. mean, it, in a lot of ways, it makes a lot of sense. And, and it's a lot less complicated in some ways than, than, um, uh, than someone else may imagine, for me, at least. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't imagine that he, he sat in contemplation. I don't imagine that he read or thought or discussed it with others. I just think that he found himself on a day with a red paint that he'd mixed that he thought was a better solution to resolving the painting than the one that he had chosen previously. Yeah. No, I love that. You're, you're saying this is actually more natural than unnatural, a part of an artist's life in a certain way. I do. I think it's instinctual. And I, and I think, you know, more often than not, and I think Matisse belongs to this school, is that instinct is just such an enormous part of how artists go about their intentions and their decision making. And, and I fall into that camp as well. Uh, I mean, I love the idea of research and rigor and examination and exploration and thinking about kind of canonical investments and histories. Um, I love the opportunity that those give me and, and the way that they inflect and affect uh, how I make decisions. But in the end, oftentimes we find ourselves um, as just simple decision makers you know, trying to find the answer to what is right and what is wrong for us, right? And, and, and again, it's a day-to-day um, story, you know? Yeah. Um, on, on Tuesday, that red was absolutely not appropriate for that picture, um, for Matisse, for my, <laughs> in my kind of um, fictional telling. Yeah. But on that Wednesday, it was absolutely the solution to the problem. Hundred percent. So I have a question following up on that, which is one thing we know just from this one interview that was published shortly after Matisse painted it with a journalist who was visiting um, from Budapest, and what he says in her article. So you, of course, have to take it with a grain of salt how she's writing up her visit in this newspaper article. But she describes him as saying, you know, this is my latest thing. I like it, but I don't really understand it. And I wonder, again, obviously you can't get into Matisse's head, but as we can get into your head, it's a nice approximation um, of an artist's way of being in general. Have you made things or done things to things that you have in the works? that after you did it, you like it, but it's actually not something you feel like you understand. I, I have to say, honestly, any artist who answers this by saying that they haven't had that experience, I struggle to trust. <laughs> <laughs> because it is so um, familiar, you know, just hearing you say it and hearing kind of the, the honesty and the generosity of that answer, it feels almost impossible to have been made up. You know, I feel like the journalist really probably very clearly captured what Matisse told, uh, told them in, 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 in that visit because it, it is um, incredibly familiar. Yeah. And it really, um, it's consistent almost in everything that I've ever made that I've considered successful after the fact that that was part of its story. It found me, I found it, 
and uh, a relationship was born and we came to an understanding, which is kind of, uh, you know, context matters here. You know, um, the way that stories and love stories um, are built between artists and artworks. You have to remember the artist kind of um, brings these things to life and then we build a relationship with these things. It's, um, it's, it's Geppetto and, and Pinocchio every time, yeah. you know? It really is. It's, it's, um, they have a, a life of their own expectations and needs. Um, some of them want to be real boys. <laughs> uh, and, and we have to figure out, you know, what and how to grant them agency, right? Yeah. And how to allow them to live on their own. Um, not unlike children. Sometimes we, we, we love our children and we don't like them. And, and so often we want to be these, um, these thinkers that are capable of, of having predicted uh, specifically what the outcome should have been for everything that we create. And it's so rare that we get to be the victors in those particular situations. Yeah. So it's a, it's, it's a challenge, but it's, it's one of the kind of beautiful struggles of, 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 of making art. That makes complete sense to me. And then of course, in this particular instance, whatever self-doubt Matisse may have had then was immediately reinforced when the collector who actually commissioned the painting denied the work, <laughs> which is really quite, uh, amazing and 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 challenging. Um, I mean, we we don't see um, as often today these kinds of patronage positions taken, where work is commissioned and then denied. I'm sure it does happen, um, but it's 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 a little less familiar in some ways. Uh, but yeah, it 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 must have been. I, I mean, I, I I wonder honestly, like, was it a blow to the ego, or or was Matisse um, able to recognize that his vision and his understanding of art and, and, and his understanding of his own uh, journey was um, a more sophisticated one than this person was capable of, of appreciating. I mean, I wonder. On good days. <laughs> and, and I know that there was a moment where he probably said to himself, that guy's a moron. There was another moment where he said to himself, well, I'm a failure. <laughs> so all of those, uh, there, there is no permanent condition for most of us. There is a fluid understanding of our ability, skill, and place in the world. So I, I've taken that journey as well. Yeah, that's great. But then it, it's final landing spot. You know, one of the things that's fascinating about this picture for me is that it really... Um, and its journey really challenges for me this idea of how the masterpiece comes to be and how context and positioning and relationships to place, locations, and, and narrative kind of help us form a masterpiece or a masterwork. Um, for me, this work lives in that camp of masterwork, but I, I'm also conscious of the fact that its location in MoMA and its celebration uh, the celebration that's been then been uh, been had around the work and its validation from historians has kind of produced an opportunity for me to say, nope, this is a masterpiece unequivocally. <laughs> you know? 
But there were a lot of contingencies along that path. A lot of contingencies and that the journey was not um, a, a straight line to, yeah. to, this, uh, to this mastered position, right? Yeah. And yeah. Um, there, there were many times along the way where, of course, it was not a masterpiece. Yeah. And then you have to think, wow, as it locates itself in its origin story, you know, yeah. um, was it a failure? Was it a failure at that time? Yeah. And is it brilliant today, right? So yeah. it's time telling us when something is a masterpiece. It's just a fascinating story of, of how work evolves, changes, and takes on different lives. And I think for me, you know, the whole masterpiece story is so tied to the impact on future generations of artists, right? That generative power of a picture or whatever work of art is what determines for me its greatness in a way because civilians can love it and appreciate it and and think it's beautiful but the, but the real measure is wow how does this thing in and of itself generate the future absolutely how how capable of it uh, or how capable is is this work of predicting where we're going right yeah. um, um yeah. there's always a prescience yeah. to a great artwork and it's capable and 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 they should be capable and, and nimble enough to speak to wherever they are at whatever whatever time and and i found that to be the case consistently with our works that i love the red studios is is definitely amongst a group of paintings that's capable of doing that, that has that existential timelessness yeah. that kind of belongs to um, a tradition that, that I'm absolutely subscribed to. And I think maybe Matisse was a little bit knowing that or hoping anyway for it with the no hands on the clock, right? That's what, uh, <laughs> I, I love the, the idea that that could have been the reality, right? That, yeah. that he, um, kind of removes time as a factor. It says you can look at this always. And yeah. ideally, it's always um, speaking the current language. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for the conversation. Thanks Absolutely. for taking time out for your own studio work. Yeah, no, it was a fun question. Thanks for including me. Next up, let's ask the multi-talented painter and sculptor, my very dear friend, Sarah Z, who in addition to having an incredible sense of space and time in her work, I knew would have something fascinating to say about the Red Studio. She has a show opening at the Guggenheim in 2023 and is working very hard on it right now and put down her brushes to talk to us. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for agreeing to um, talk about the Red Studio. As you know, for Matisse, to put that layer of red on top of what was a previously complete painting, if you were in his shoes, do you think that you would finish that first version of the painting and then at some point begin thinking about what you wanted to change or how you wanted to experiment with it? in a second stage? Or do you think it was something that he walked in one morning and just had a flash, I'm going to do this thing? So 
I think that paintings talk to you and they tell you what to do. So I think as an artist, half of what you do is you listen to each step you make. And I think that processes in paintings are, they're additive and they're reductive. Um, and they come to you in moments. And I, obviously this is conjecture, but I think he had done the pink studio and he did the painting that's under the red studio. And I think, you know, one of the things that's always uh, a constant struggle and a constant joy of any creative process is the effort to try and not repeat yourself. And so I think he saw the, the, the painting and he thought, this is, this is not a painting that's telling me anything new. And I think all great paintings, one of the magical things about them is that when you see them, you see this incredible moment of discovery that the artist had is actually, you see that in the painting and it's translated to you in a different time and a different space through that painting, through that object. So I think that when he saw the painting as finished, um, and this is more technical, you need to, you really need to let things dry actually with oil paint. Um, so I think he put it aside and actually it would have taken, you know, up to anywhere between, depending on what colors and, you know, how much turpentine he used, really up to a month to actually be able to go in and then paint over to like to use Venetian red almost as erasure. Um, and I think he I think he was dying to do it when he did it. I think he was waiting for that paint to dry. And it was probably on the side of his studio. And from from just from seeing the studio itself, it seems he's working at, on a couple of paintings at once and he keeps his paintings around. So he's seeing it and every day he's waiting and he's just waiting. And finally that paint is dry enough and he gets a big big amount because that's the other thing that's interesting about if you mix a very specific color you know you really have to mix enough so you can work quickly but he gets a big amount of that venetian red and a big brush and it's this incredibly bold very fast move that he's been dying to do but had to wait till it dried so that's what i think and then i also think that when once he had done it he had to let it dry so i think that it he also had to listen to the painting to know that he should not do more. I'm not sure that when he when he went in and he said, I'm going to make this red, that he didn't know it would be and there would be another stage. Because I think paintings are generative. They generate each other, but moves within paintings, erasures are added, you know, adding to paintings. They actually, they also happen only in reaction to one another. And I, I don't, I, I don't know if the if anyone has actually proven this or not, but I have this kind of thought that he did. He, that he erased, he took out everything and that he just left these fine lines. And that was done very quickly. Those decisions were done very, very quickly on what to save or not. Um, and then possibly he stood back and he decided to go in and paint the figures and the frame at a slower rate and more specifically that because he, I can imagine stepping back from that painting and saying, what's the link that I can make, you know, the red that holds the painting just marry with the objects that are creating the space and that one little thing and then saying that's all it needs and then stopping and then letting it dry and at the end of the drawing saying this is it it's done and he's looked at it and he's kept it in the studio and he and he can you know again you don't always you, the, the wonderful thing about painting is you don't know why they work you can't really verbalize them and he see, he knows it's done and that's when he signs it so that's my story for it when he decided to put the red on the painting, 
the thing that maybe some of us aren't really aware of is that it was not a move he could go back on, right? Once you have oil paint on the canvas on top of the earlier paint, you can't say like, oh, let me get my eraser. Well, I think that that's also one of the things that painting does differently than any other meeting, medium in that you know you sense the bravura of the move. It is You can ruin a painting. With a lot of other things you can, I mean, if you're carving into marble and, you know, it's one piece and you break it, but with a lot of other things you can go backwards on. And with painting, you can actually ruin it. Um, and sometimes you have to kill, you know, this idea of killing your darlings is a very painterly idea. So that painting, you see the bravery of the mark. You see it live because it is such it is such a fast, such a directed, such a permanent gesture. Um, and I think, you know, but I think what you were saying also, that thing that I think people don't realize is painting is about, it is additive and it, and it is reductive. So you, you take things out of paintings to let other parts of the painting live. It's a balance. A composition is always a balance. So I think that um, it was erasure, like the, the, that the, it was additive as red, but we know that it was erasure. We know that he was erasing what was behind. We also know that those lines would never live like lines had they not, they're actually, you know, they're actually underpainting um, leftovers reading as structure, right? Yes. So even the decisions that he decide, you know, wh what he decides to leave becomes the question rather than what he decides to add. And so for me, that's constantly what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about putting in a line that can be, that, that can build and that can take away and that, and finding this point where, um, the painting has, has both built and um, has uh, in some ways disappeared at the same time. For me, that actually, and that it comes also from a sculptural, uh, you know, a sculptural way of thinking about sculpture as well, that to, to find a painting um, in, or a sculpture in a moment of transition where it feels as if it's growing and dying at the same time. So in this painting, you feel like it is, being created, but it's disappearing before your eyes. And so it's just barely hanging on. And that actually puts the process of seeing or deciphering or uh, imagining the space in the hands of the viewer, because it, it, we really have to put together the space. And we understand that actually in any painting you're putting, your eye is putting together the space, that it's really just a flat plane. But it's interesting to me in painting to find a location when the painting is done where the viewer is them in in the act of seeing, putting together what came first, what came next, how, you know, is it for me, is it a collage? Is it a piece of paint? Is it a photograph? And how those can be woven and locked together. And I think that happens very much in this painting. And it puts the lie to the idea that being a viewer is a passive activity. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the idea that it's a studio, he purposely names them as a series that you, you know, you see that it's generative, that one work generates the next, you know, and this is something that is very much in, the, I think, the minds of many of his contemporaries too, Monet, you know, that, that you see time in the paintings. That's what's also really nice about it, that the way you're looking at that, the painting as a moment in time where we see this moment where he makes this absolutely radical decision, right? It, it, you see the time of the slow mark and you see the time of the fast mark. Um, and I think that I think the, the other thing that's interesting about it is um, 
I think that it's such a radical departure from the way people are painting at that time. Um, but I think that it's really heavily informed um, by the opening of Japan in in the, in the mid 1800s, like you know, where you in like around 1850, Japanese trade comes out. It's funny because I this summer I went to uh, to the Rodin Museum and I saw that this incredible painting of Van Gogh's that's in the Rodin collection um, of this. You know, he did this portrait of this man who was actually copying woodblock prints, and behind it there's all this incredible collection of woodblock prints. And the way that um, this incredibly radical way of seeing the image was suddenly brought, to, and particularly in France, was you know, but it, they, it became this unbelievable rage of uh, uh, infatuation. But with Matisse, what's really interesting is I think this painting is very, very influenced by a co very complex way that Japanese woodblock prints actually use space, and that is this like. Um, ability to take large, large swaths of one color and use it to define space. So if you look at a Japanese wood clock, particularly like a, a, a snow scene, which I love, if you look at like Hiroshige's Kiso Mountain snow scene, it is like this painting, you know, anywhere we could measure what 70% one color. And these markers in the composition make deep space, make corners, make you understand that there is a light in the space, but it's like more than light. It's kind of weather. It's like how we actually experience light is much more psychological, much more interior, much more emotional. Um, and that's, that's something that in Japanese prints you see. You see that they can create deep middle and far space with one color plane. Um, and one of the things that he does with it is, is, he, is through objects. So with Japanese prints, you often have, um, you know, you have a branch very close and then you have a person really far away. So I think, you know, one of the really important parts of this is like keeping the wine glass because the wine glass, we know it scales the whole painting. You know, the pa a paint when he's painting pieces of art, they could be huge, they could be small, they're art. And that's something that I'm also really interested in is how you create a, a location um, in an artwork, whether it be a painting or sculpture, that locates you in the painting, but then everything else in the painting puts you in a place of disorientation, and you have to constantly use it that use the painting itself as a kind of compass for your orientation in space. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you for doing great. It was a great show. Next, I thought we should have Anne tootle on over to Connecticut and visit with the painter Carol Dunham. Carol, and to his friends called Tip, whom I visited this summer and saw the most incredible suite of lithographs that he just finished with Universal Limited Art Editions, also just had a show this summer at Max Hetzler. Hi, Anne. Hello. So this is kind of digging right in then. I'm, I'm not going to give any long explanation, but here's what I've been thinking about. Whether Matisse's irreversible decision to put that layer of red on top of what was already an essentially finished painting was something 
he did on the spur of the moment, something he had carefully premeditated for possibly weeks. I thought it would be great to ask a number of painters what their thoughts on this might be. So you're asking me? Unfortunately. <laughs> I guess my initial thought is that it's kind of a false distinction that I, I don't think anyone really knows where their ideas come from. I, I mean, artists are not special in the sense that, you know, artists may have nonlinear thought processes relative to the way other kinds of people think. I really don't know. But I don't think anyone knows where their ideas come from. They just appear. And then whatever you have already set up with yourself in terms of structures of rationalization and analysis come into play. But I don't think there's any logical thought process that leads you to the idea of covering a big painting with Venetian red paint. It's, I, I would imagine that if I were writing a play about this, I guess I would represent it as, what a strange thing that just occurred to me. And then I, Matisse does it, has never seemed to me in any way to be an impulsive character. So I wouldn't imagine that there's anything very impulsive about this. And I also think re reading some of the anecdotal material in the, in the exhibition and in the book that even he was a bit baffled by what he had done. And he continued to seem to talk about it that way for quite a while after he finished the painting. And he also had to contend with negative reactions from patrons and things like that. So I think he probably thought about it a lot and realized it was not something he could dodge or avoid. I would imagine he might have thought it was an awful idea when it first occurred to him and then spent enough time with it to realize that it was something he had to do. I love what you were saying right off the bat, though, and I, I completely, if, if I understand you correctly, get what you mean, that there's no absolute dividing line between premeditated and impulse, right? Because it's sort of like boiling water. It can be getting hotter and hotter. And then there's a certain boiling point, but it's not as if the boil comes from nowhere. It, 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 it doesn't come from nowhere, but it also may not come from anywhere we can really understand. I mean, obviously, I mean, it seems clear to me that he must have experienced some discomfort with what he had made or some sense of it falling short, some kind of dissatisfaction that would have caused him to have thoughts that might, or feelings that might lead to this notion of just obliterating an entire level of uh, whatever we want to call it, representational mapping in order to turn the painting into something different. I don't think that idea would have come to someone who was completely thrilled with what they had done. And for my own part, I have no idea where my ideas come from. I mean, they, they appear, they come into my consciousness, they leave my consciousness. I have a memory so I can hold on to some of them, work with them, entertain them or have them entertain me, whatever. I imagine some process like that. It's a very odd thing to decide to do from a certain perspective. And yet, of course, he had experience with it, right? Like, so Harmony in Red from 1908 
the painting that set the dimensions for this one. You know, Shukin, the patron, specifically said, make me a trio of paintings the same size as Harmony in Red. Right. So Harmony in Red had been commissioned to be a green painting to go with the Gauguins in his dining room. And then midway through, and this is 1908, Matisse writes to him and says, no, guess what? Now it's red. And at that point, Shukin was just like, oh, terrific. Red sounds great. But so one of the intriguing things here for me is that there is, however, you know, at what level of consciousness we don't know, of Matisse having a prior experience and a successful experience of a revisit and a revisit in the direction of red, although a very different red, on a prior painting for this patron. Absolutely. And he may have, some part of his mind, he may have stored that. And, and that could have certainly been a catalyst for thinking that he might try to do the, a, well, similar or in some sense, parallel thing to this painting. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. Cause that's, I mean, obviously he knew what he had made and he knew he, he must've felt he knew Shukin pretty well at that point. Yeah. Um, but Shukin didn't really like the painting. Yeah. And that to me is one of the most, probably the most interesting aspect of the whole story of, this hagiography of the painting is that Matisse, I, it must have really hurt his feelings and messed him up in some way to have that painting rejected. I think so too. I mean, he certainly didn't know it was going to end up in the Museum of Modern Art. <laughs> and from the perspective of where he was operating at the time, Shukin's patronage must have just been everything to him. Right, like on a very basic level, it was 10,000 francs he thought was coming his way that sat now weren't. So it must have been devastating in some way when this to for this to happen. Uh, but he, he couldn't have ever known the interest that we all, you know, in the future would have in the picture. Yes. I honestly haven't thought a lot about these kinds of questions you're asking. Something that really caught me off guard when I went to see the show because I, I think of myself as knowing this painting very well. You know, it used to be up in the, when the museum was much smaller. It was up all the time. I had a job near the modern. I went to my lunch hour there. You know, I, I spent a lot of time with that painting. And I thought I knew it really well. And when I went in and saw it in your exhibition, it was smaller than I remembered. And it was much browner than I remembered. I had it almost like a, not a fire engine red, but in my memory, it was a much, a much more primary kind of color. I don't exactly know what that's about. I guess I, I also used to think of it as being this uh, signpost on the road to abstraction or something, because I think I was embracing an idea of modernist history that we were being set. was very, te yeah. very teleological and led towards certain inevitable developments and not exactly a Clement Greenberg idea, but certainly not unrelated to that. And, you know, the big, enormous Barnett Newman was in the museum, big red painting. You could connect all these dots. Yes. Now that seems much less clear to me. 
I'm much more interested in the fact that it's a picture of his studio and that he did that. Seems like it has a kind of um, personal, emotional, subject-driven meaning that I was not in any way equipped to look at when I was younger. Changing of the times. Yeah. And so not, not so much even just about you, but like the whole frame of reference everyone has now versus 40 years ago or 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's strange and somewhat annoying to realize that your frame of reference can be that <laughs> malleable. But again, it's interesting and it's human nature, whatever. It's human stuff. So yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for asking me. And next, I thought it would be great for Anne to call the painter Joe Bradley. He had a show at Friedrich Petzl in March that was incredibly well-received. I loved it, and I thought he'd have great stuff to say about Matisse. We found him on vacation with his family in Majorca. Hi, Joe. Hi, Anne. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for doing this. So here's the background that obviously I, as an art historian, was doing all I could to learn about this painting and think about this painting over the last many, many months. Mm -hmm. I was looking at a, a, a catalog of, um, I think it was a mu museum show, a, a retrospective of Matisse recently, and they had one of his, I can't remember the title now, but it's an iconic painting of a reclining nude woman. And there was maybe 10 or 15 takes, or, you know, he had revised the thing pretty radically a number of times over the course of its life and studio. And I mean, with Matisse, it always looks, the final, um, the painting that you look at looks so effortless and so casual and the, um, the paint application is so sort of just, it just looks perfect, you know, and rather effort, effortless. Um, and he doesn't let you see him sweat. So, uh, but yeah, with the, the, the red studio, it's an odd decision to have the whole thing, this sort of terracotta, um, brown, red, but it does, it makes the, um, the paintings themselves, like I went to see the show uh, maybe three or four weeks ago and it was a really hot day in New York and I was in there with about 500 other people <laughs> sort of crowding, uh, you know, fighting our way to see the paintings. But um, one, one thought that I had was that they, the paintings themselves appear almost like little flowers in a garden or something, you know, like the, that, that earth uh, tone makes them pop um, in a way that maybe it wouldn't have if they were, you know, if it was a naturalistic uh, white, white walled studio. Um, yeah, it, it, it draws attention to the pictures in the, within the picture and almost gives them a sort of um, a luminosity. They look like they're, they're lit from behind. Yeah, it also produces this thing which is consistent in Matisse's work throughout his whole career, 
out, which is that ambiguity or ambivalence of something of whether something is a window or something yes. is a painting. Right. For right? sure. And he plays yeah. with that all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also love what you say about flowers because, of course, his garden surrounding his studio was something that he put, you know, oodles of time and effort into. And he always talked about the flowers as the kind of um, unapproachable gold that <laughs> right, he held right. himself to in terms of, you know, the vividness of color and the vibrancy of color. And, and what, what a great, I mean, what a, just an incredible colorist Matisse was. I mean, it's, it's just every painting is a knockout. And what you were saying about the effortlessness is so, so true. You know, it, it concerned him very much that his painting looked easy and that young artists would think, oh, you can do this really pretty quickly and, and without too much thinking, because actually he was an agonizingly careful, <laughs> self-torturing it's artist. kind of fa- false advertising on the part of <laughs> Matisse. He does exactly. make it look, he makes it look very easy. One of the cool things about living in New York is that you can kind of pop into, like I'll go to MoMA for 45 minutes, you know, and, and uh, kind of take a brisk walk through the place. And that the painting of the dancers always stops me every single time. And it, it shares something with the Red Studio, which is a year later than it in that Matisse is really happy to let you see his process, right? So he's happy to let you see his mistake, like there are the black grips from the borders of, of the outlines of the bodies that just dribble down on mm-hmm. green mm-hmm. grass, or there are places where he's repositioned um, part of one dancer, and, and he's perfectly content for that to be transparent to the viewer. And there are so many places in the Red Studio where he's letting us see that this is actually a second version. He's a very generous painter in that regard, that he, he, he allows that these sort of things that another artist might have covered up to be sitting on the surface and available. Um, there's another great, there's a great, painting in the show i think it was a fishbowl with the the, the, with the dancers behind it yeah, yeah 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 that one really stopped me in my tracks as well and and again another just sort of spot on <laughs> another another banger from matisse yeah. <laughs> yeah and what do you think about this question of um changing your mind from your own point of view um or if not changing your mind, taking yourself in a direction of a certain painting that you hadn't predicted at the start. How much, how much does that ring true for you in your own experience of ending up landing somewhere where you had no idea you were going to land? I mean, I think it's key for me. It's, 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 um, it's almost, I mean, that's how you know that you're approaching the finish line if you feel like like when i look at one of my own paintings and it feels completely unfamiliar and i'd, I'd feel like i can't look at it and unpack 
tease out, you know, this is why I did this and this is why I made this decision. That's how I know that I'm in the right neighborhood. So I think, yeah, it's essential that, that uh, you surprise yourself. It's almost like at a certain stage, the painting is smarter than you are. Absolutely. Yeah. You want to transcend your own, uh, or at least I want to transcend my own, you know, I, you know, silly ideas about what, <laughs> what makes a good painting or, or, you know, um, yeah, you always want the, the painting itself to lead the, lead the way. And how much are you, when you're working, thinking about, which I think about in terms of, um, this particular layer of red in Red Studio, something being something you can't take back, right? There are certain decisions you can make that are reversible. Right. And then there are certain decisions you make that aren't reversible. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, that does add a certain... Um, Terror? <laughs> sense of, yeah, danger to the to the the whole thing. Like you, And I mean, there are definitely times that I've, overpainted something for whatever reason and and there's no getting it you know you can't reverse course and and, uh, and get it back but um yeah c'est la vie you know i mean that's just as part of the part of the deal <laughs> and what about painting the studio as a subject good idea right i don't think i've i think i might have done it when i was a student i mean it is sort of a uh, it's a kind of classic motif, right? It's been, maybe I'll give it a try. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like that, that the idea, I mean, it's kind of cool to have a, a painting that catalogs recent paintings within. And, uh, yeah. For a long time, you know, it, uh, early on, our historians were speculating, like, was this, you know, some kind of curated retrospective and, um, how did we make those choices? And, and from the research um, that's been done either by ourselves or over the years, it's pretty clear. This was just what was around. This was what he hadn't right. sold yet. That didn't happen to be out on exhibition at the moment. It was just what and was And not, not everything, there were objects that weren't his own, right? Well, there were two paintings that didn't belong to him. One belonged to his dealer and one belonged, we think, to his sister-in-law. You know, they were there in the studio with him we don't know exactly why but the other things would have just been things that weren't that were, sold and right I, okay that's one of the reasons why the picture is full of these kind of exceptionally radical pictures like the young sailor or len Lux, mm -hmm. you know because they were just too odd T too weird them. for <laughs> has anyone ever ever tried to assemble uh, these things together before? Because it's such a kind of cool idea for a show, but it had no one. Right. I mean, the thing about the picture is it's actually much more kind of like a, a picture of an exhibition than a picture of a studio. It's like there's no easels, there's no paint cans, there's no, or tubes, there's no model lying on a sofa. You know, it really is more like he set up at least that corner of his studio life, a kind of gallery or like a, you know, home mm -hmm. with pictures all over it. So the idea to make that exhibition an exhibition is, is not a very, um, 
it's not a leap of imagination, but but we are the first ones who, who have done it. And um, it just was a miracle that everybody agreed. Fantastic. Well, I really enjoyed seeing it. Thank you so much. So the next person in the speed dating lineup with Anne is David Reed, the painter. And I thought that he'd be amazing because he's not only a wonderful painter, he writes beautifully on painting and in particular color in painting. I read a story he wrote about Becca Fumi some years ago in Arts Magazine, and it was so incredible that I taped it to the wall of my studio. Good morning, David. Good morning, Anne. I want to talk about the Red Studio. So what I wonder is, how long did Matisse think about putting that red layer on? Was that something he was mulling, or was that an impulse decision? Oh, I think he was a pretty careful man, especially in his use of color. So I imagine... He thought about it for a month at least. But then when he did it, saw that it was working and went ahead quickly. And that seems to be the evidence from the way the painting was done. Um, when I saw it this time, I realized my memory was quite false. I expected the red to be much brighter. Same mistake. I think everybody makes with Matisse. We think of him as doing kind of bright, joyful, decorative paintings. And that Venetian red is not bright, joyful, or decorative. It's a surprise. Had he used a color like, had he used Venetian red in other paintings in this way? I haven't found any examples. I wonder if you had. There are, and they're really interesting examples in that in those two or three years prior to making the Red Studio, where it figures especially are these paintings of Oriental rugs. Oh, how interesting. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, when I start thinking about dye colors, and Venice, I think of Tintoretto, who, of course, was from a family of dye dyers. Yes. And he was the first to use a lot of the dye colors in oil painting. Yes. And there is a connection between colors in cloth and more and more so in contemporary painting. Yeah. So it's a very interesting connection. Yeah. I think it's not a coincidence, you know, but at what level that's conscious or not is a whole other matter. It seems Matisse is a painter that's both very conscious of what he does and also very makes unconscious decisions that are quite good, um, an unusual combination. You think so? I do. You wouldn't say that's just any painter. No. Uh, a lot of us, I, I, I speak for myself, I, I feel I have to go into one mode or the other. It's hard to... Um, do both at the same time, and it seems that Matisse can. 
Yeah. Um, he's very smart with the color. People think it's bright, but it's in fact, he's using a lot of earth tones, black and white, a lot of grays. And if you look at the actual painting that you think is bright, like Red Studio, it isn't it's something else. And he's manipulated the color to give the, you an illusion of brightness and beautiful color when it's not. And were you surprised also when you looked at it this time to realize, as you know, I have on, on the project, that actually the red has very different appearance at different places in the pictures? Yes. I, I looked at that very carefully, and I had thought it might change because of the colors next to it. And it does that to some extent, but it changes more because of the color underneath. Yes. And um, that was surprising to me. And in general, in the painting, I was surprised to see so much of what had been painted over showing through. There are edges on all of the um, forms that give you a sense of what was underneath before. Um, is it something... There's a second painting there that you can't see a secret and that that's influencing the red and the rest of the atmosphere of the painting. Um, it's as if something, I mean, I understood why Han Tai is so interested in Matisse because he also holds whites and other things in reserve in yes. that same way. And he must have learned it from Matisse. And I always thought, well, he learned to use decorative color. And it's, in fact, something very different that he learned. That's so interesting. Yeah, it's like Matisse is this criminal who actually is very happy and willing to leave you all the clues to his crime, right? It's like he's wanting to be discovered in some way. You're right, because it's very obvious, even though my memory didn't have it in there. He's, he's very clever about that. So when you look at the painting, you're constantly making discoveries. And he does a very funny thing. In the middle of the painting, there's that burn, which is like a glaze of Venetian red over white. So he's as if showing, well, I could have used it this way, but I didn't. I used it to block things out and then left edges showing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's crazy. And also what's really crazy is once, of course, this is in our heads as what happened. You look at the painting and yeah. yes, it's very clear that the red on top of the pink floor is a different red than the red on top of, say, the blue wall. But, you yes. know, for ages and ages that, well, not ages and ages, but decades and decades, no one said anything about that. It was just the red studio with the red layer. In part, I think, because in reproduction, those nuances don't yeah. come through. Yeah, yeah. Right? I was thinking, yeah, yeah. You don't see the revealed edges, but what's hidden in the reproduction. And they always make the red look nicer than it is. They're trying to improve on Matisse. They don't let him stay the way he is. Yeah. But you and, know that complaint that Matisse made um, often over the course of the years 
that he was afraid people would think his art was so easy because it looked easy. And it made him concerned that young painters would think, oh, being an artist is easy. And for Matisse especially, it was anything but. Yes, I think that's true. And I I mean, I fell into that trap like everyone else. I assumed to see transparent, bright reds between everything. And I should have looked more closely before and had known better. Um, Is it a painting that you've liked over the years, especially much or not, especially much over the years? I guess it hasn't been my favorite over the years. And now it is. And there's also the plot, Anne, which of the empty chairs on the right. And I hadn't noticed that before either. And that's sets a real drama to the painting. What do you think about those? I think they're very fitting. One is a missing Matisse, you know, who's no longer there, which fits with everything. The way everything's set up, there's no active painting going on. It's the results of this painting. And then the other, he's welcoming us or someone else to sit and look at the painting carefully. Um, It's a beautiful thing and very active in the painting. And I'm ashamed of myself that I didn't notice that soon, too. Because once you do notice it, it's a big part of the painting. Yes. Yeah. And so you can, I think it's one of the few places that he painted back over the red and put in different color for the yellow of that chair. Yeah. So it stands out more. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that too. But if that's any great work of art, whether it's music or book or painting, right? It, you just go back to it again and again, and it has some things that have, were there all along, but weren't like we were looking at before. Yeah, I mean, I've been astounded by my experience of this painting, how much it's changed for me from seeing it in the show. Well, thank you. Thank you, Anne. Last but not least, we find Charlene Van Heil in her studio in Marfa, Texas. She's not only one of our greatest painters, but someone whom I have long admired. She shows with Friedrich Petzl, and she is currently in the Venice Biennale. Hey, Charvine. Hello, Anne. I have just really a few minutes um, worth of questions for you about Matisse's Red Studio. Okay, go ahead. What I would love to hear your thoughts about is the fact that the red layer that blankets the surface, covering more than two-thirds of the surface, actually, was a second stage of the painting. And that what we know from our conservators is that there was a first stage completely finished of this painting that existed for several weeks before the red came along. So that, that much I know as an art historian. <laughs> and to me as an artist, that sounds like uh, a no-brainer. There are two other paintings that he made during that time that are 
very similar. One is the Harmony in Red and one is the Pink Studio. And they were perfectly wonderful painting and paintings. And I'm sure that this painting, the Red Studio, has as well been a perfectly <laughs> wonderful painting. And I would think that it just got stale in the studio. That is something that happened. And uh, so the move to overpaint it uh, in one color is a radical move to get out of your own comfort zone to uh, try something that might um, ruin the painting, but also might get you into a completely new sphere. And in this case, he really managed to make one of the most modern painting in art history because it is doing something that we all try to do now, which is to flip between the image and the painting, between the mental and the visceral, uh, just by putting everything on the forefront with one color. Talk to me a little bit more about this idea of getting stale. It is the studio situation, and I like it that he actually used the studio image for that move because the studio in itself is already a place where you are um, in a certain routine and uh, you come to a point where you know what you're doing. And if you want to, it's very satisfying to make paintings when you know what you're doing uh, until it's not. And um, I think that's exactly when desperate moves like that, because it's not just radical. It's, it has, uh, it's courageous, it's, uh, it's glamorous, but it's also desperate to, to do something like that, to really go ahead and just use the drawing of the painting uh, as a, a guide and then basically erase the painting and uh, give it a completely new uh, state. And I like it also that he did it with uh, this um, Venetian red, which is also like Pompeii red, and it's a color of frescoes. So it's also the color classically of underpainting. So a lot of painters paint everything that they want to start with in this exactly that red. Uh, that has been done since many, many centuries, uh, a complementary underpainting. So he uses that particular color that is such a rich and um, historical color uh, to do something completely uh, radical and new and uh, just make it uh, uh, turn a, a representational space into a picture plane. Do you have an equivalent moment where you've taken something that you thought originally was fine and finished and then it grew stale and then you did something unexpected? Yes, uh, I have. And I have to say, it really does not work every time. <laughs> <laughs> but I do it quite often and it's, it is also important to have the paintings in the studio because you have to watch them because they can grow stale. And uh, it is sometimes exactly the paintings that you are the proudest of and that are the most accomplished. And it looks as if Matisse's underpainting was a very accomplished painting. And it's exactly that painting 
that is the one that suddenly wants to be what at that point is nothing other than destroyed because you don't know if it's going to work. And how do you achieve that distance, that that mental distance you need from yourself to have, you know, something, as you say, that may be the thing that you were even happiest with, suddenly readjust your perception of it? The thing is that I'm readjusting my perception of everything in the studio at all times uh, in a continuous sort of uh, uh, event. and. Uh, that's why, for me, it is so important that I can do that with every painting, that the first thing you see is an image, not the painting. So it is an image, not as representation, but the eye taking in the whole as an image. And the next step would be that as a beholder, I see the image become an object, a painting. And only then I might be interested in what as what is it as a painting and what is it as an image? Uh, is it actually something that uh, represents something? Uh, so like with the Matisse painting, are there signifiers that give me something more to think about in representational terms? Or is it something that wants to stay flat? Or is it something that wants to come out of the painting at my... Um, I and hover in front of the painting. There are so many possibilities to fuck up what you have done before. And once you grow kind of critical or questioning of something, will you get right at it or will you think a while and kind of let it marinate in your head that this needs some sort of more uh, work or attention? That depends. Sometimes it's really a painting is so accomplished that I cannot add or subtract something. Then I can only destroy it. If I have that feeling that it's actually boring or that I know it too well. So um, then I'm just going to overpaint it. You're like all black. Or what I like to do is actually use um, interference colors that just change the tone of the whole painting and make it disappear from the front of the canvas into the back so that I can add something to it. And uh, the whole painting just becomes pattern. Uh, that's a possibility, but the other possibilities are just to, um, to add something that questions the uh, intent of the painting, something that's really stupid or something that's actually um, changing the rhythm of it or... Something like that. But you have to look at it. You know, like sometimes it is surprising which paintings want to be manipulated and then sometimes which paintings are done and they're just five brushstrokes. And would you want to venture a guess? It's totally imaginary, of course, what Matisse might have thought once he did put the red on. Deep satisfaction, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Charlie. That was fun. <laughs> that was so fun. Hey, everybody. This is Lisa again. I just listened to this podcast while I was painting, and I got excited about painting all over again. And I'd like to thank Matisse, first of all, and MoMA and Temkin for being the star of this 
podcast. She did an amazing job interviewing everyone and drawing everyone out of their studio practices and asking so many great questions. Um, of course, for all the artists for putting down their brushes and telling us their secrets. And everyone at David's Warner Gallery for taking on this production. Goodbye. <laughs>